Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 23 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robin Kutka. She received her medical education from the National College of Natural Medicine, where she trained as a general practitioner, and subsequently she tailored her education to receive more focused training in the field of women's health, completing a three-year women's health clinical internship. She continues to advance her knowledge in the field, studying from the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Hormone balancing is a cornerstone of her private practice, and she serves as an educational resource for providers across the world on the topic of hormone balancing and bioidentical hormones. She shared her knowledge by speaking for a variety of organisations, including the Integrative Healthcare Symposium. When not exploring new gluten-free recipes, Dr. Robin spends her time enjoying the outdoors with her children, partner and dogs. And on today's episode, we delve into hormones and why for many of us with SIBO, they often are causing a lot of havoc for us. And sometimes they're a very forgotten piece in the puzzle of why we're not getting well. So this is a great episode for both women and men alike because we do talk about the differences that hormones play in both the female and the male bodies. So I hope you enjoy episode 23 with Dr. Robin Kutka. Welcome to the show, Dr. Robin Kutka. It's really lovely to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Now, we, um, I have you on the show and I'm personally extremely interested and excited about today's topic because it's all about hormones and it's something that uh, I feel that I have had to you know, live with the highs and the lows of altered hormones and disrupted hormones uh, most of my life. So I'm really excited about today. But I'd love for you to share with the listeners how you came to be uh, um, you know, a doctor and how you came to be specializing um, particularly around um, hormones. Sure, absolutely. Um, as far as becoming a physician, I had always thought that I would be a conventional physician. And when I was in my mid-20s, I um, was what I would think is a reasonably healthy young woman. And I went to my, my physician uh, for actually for stomach complaints, and um, they gave me another pill. And so I was 26 years old and on nine medications uh, as a individual that if I walked into my own office right now, I would consider reasonably healthy. So when that happened, I 
threw away my dream of becoming a doctor because that's all I knew and that's not what I wanted to do for people. I knew that there must be more out there. And I ended up um, just taking odd jobs here and there. And in the back of a magazine article, I saw a advertisement for naturopathic physicians. Um, and when I read the tenets of care for that, um, doctors, teacher, the healing body or healing power of nature and the body's ability to heal itself, that resonated. Um, and I realized that I could pursue my dream in medicine. And so I did uh, and attended... Um, med school with two young kids. Uh, it was tough, but it was brought me to where I am today, um, where I do see people as a primary care physician um, in my state. And I never thought that I would be doing hormones. Uh, that was not on my list. I got done with school and thought that I was going to um, be focusing in autism and pediatrics. And I found myself working at um, a laboratory to, and uh, the lab actually did a lot of um, hormone testing. That was their main focus. I still work there today. Uh, and we did salivary hormone testing and I was immersed in this world of knowledge that I had no idea. And I learned so much and I've been able to do so much research and realize that um, hormone imbalances are so prevalent, uh, both in men and women in all ages. Uh, and when we work with balancing hormones, people get better. Uh, profoundly, uh, or at least allows them to start to focus on the other areas of life that they can do when we um, restill their energy and everything that comes along with hormone imbalance. So I currently work with um, physicians um, around the world, helping them learn how to interpret hormone panels and um, use bioidentical hormones to treat their patients and get good success with that. As far as myself in hormones, um, it goes just a little bit deeper, and um, as a physician, I found myself with thyroid cancer, and I don't share that with um, a lot of people, but I'll share it with your listeners because I think it's um, important um, because they have also probably experienced some of the same things I did. When I was being treated for uh, thyroid cancer, it was a conventional approach, uh, and I experienced uh, extreme hormone imbalance just by nature of the treatment, and with that... Um, I experienced the lack of individuality in the conventional approach to hormone balancing. Uh, and it, I didn't feel good. I didn't get better. And it wasn't until turning back to our own medicine uh, and individualized therapies that I, I did feel better. Uh, so I bring that level of both expertise and empathy to my patients uh, when we're coming up with their own plans and looking at what's really going on for them. Uh, and coming up with an individualized approach. Mm, and I, I um, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that you uh, experienced thyroid cancer, but um, I guess it has been um, beneficial as well in your practice to, um, you know, know exactly firsthand what your patients experience as well with hormone imbalances. Mm -hmm. uh, and that must have been really tough. So it's so great to have you here uh, still with us today and, uh, and have got through that journey. Um, what, what does it feel like when you do have hormones that are out of balance. Are there some common um, signals or symptoms that we can categorically say, oh, that's your hormones? Or is it a little bit more subdued and, and can often be uh, thought of as something else going wrong in the body? Um, great question. I, 
oftentimes I think it's pretty vague and things that we live with or explain away to um, just to the aging process. Uh, things like fatigue or brain fog. Those are two big ones, but mood disturbances and just not feeling like yourself. Uh, you know, oftentimes if people go into their um, healthcare provider and they complain about these symptoms, that's chalked up to aging or having too much on their plate. And while those might play a role, um, very often there's much more to it and some type of underlying hormone imbalance. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm just thinking of conversations I've heard with so many people that will say, I'm just really tired. I've just, I'm working a lot and you know, mm -hmm. the kids are keeping me busy and I'm not sleeping well at night, but it's because I'm so busy rather than, well, is there something else happening that's causing these feelings? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe everything they're doing is contributing to that hormone balance or excuse me, hormone imbalance that's uh, being symptomatic. I kind of call that super mom syndrome where we try to do everything. We're caregivers and mothers and working jobs and trying to take care of ourselves. But um, there's a lot that we can do with that, um, that without having to give up um, what we're, we're doing in our daily lives that can, addressing the hormone imbalances can profoundly affect our abilities to, to continue doing that uh, while we feel better. And taking a step back, can we can we can you tell me a little bit about what a, a hormone actually is? Like, what is its purpose in our body, and what are they there for? Yeah, absolutely. So, hormones are our main messengers. They're there to communicate with your cells and your tissues, um, and tell your body to do something. Those kind of little communication molecules. They regulate um, systems and. Uh, from anything from the menstrual cycle to quick changes in blood pressure, our blood sugar regulation, um, our metabolism, uh, and they work with other uh, chemicals known as neurotransmitters. Um, and together, they help control our mood, our desire, our drive, libido, our sleep cycles. You mentioned sleep. That's a big one. Um, our energy levels and how we handle stress. I think for many people, um, hormones equals some form of um, either reproductive or sex hormone. I think there's a mm -hmm. very um, well aware and, and strong, um, yeah, strong awareness out there in the community around hormones have something to do with those um, functions of the body. I think where perhaps there's less awareness is that it can that hormones hormones are also responsible for other things like you say sleep or um, regulating blood pressure or blood sugar and. It's really interesting uh -huh. that, uh, you know, people might think that it has nothing to do with their hormones when in fact those little communication messengers are the things that are responsible for passing on messages to other sections of the body. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when we hear hormones, most people automatically think menopause and hot flashes, um, but it's so much more than that. Uh, and there's so much that we can do to help balance it. Um, that often gets overlooked, but even little things like skin changes, dry skin, hair loss, um, you know, things that we wouldn't necessarily attribute to hormone, hormones can be affected by hormone balance. Along the lines of hormones, we often think women, that's the, you know, hormones affect women at menopause, but men have hormone imbalance. Um, you know, yes, that hormone imbalance um, is exacerbated or increases with aging, and we think about lowered testosterone, 
but it's more than that um, and it affects their prostate health and stress levels and um, so it's it really truly does affect all uh, both men and women. Mm, definitely. And what about the health of one's digestive system or gastrointestinal system on hormones? Does the health of our gut, and given that many people listening to this episode um, have SIBO or Mm -hmm. another GI condition, uh, how much does that impact our hormones? Um, Quite a bit, actually. You know, um, as as you all know, our bacteria, or excuse me, our gut is full of bacteria. And um, there's something known as the um, gut-brain access that's influenced by our... um, hormone levels, but the bacteria also influence our hormone levels. Um, For example, uh, our bacteria will uh, help in the small intestine, the bacteria um, will affect estrogen levels. And instead of excreting estrogen through the stool like we're supposed to, um, our bacteria can, um, through a process, um, make it so that we're recycling our estrogen and reabsorbing it. So if we think about that example for somebody with SIBO where we have this intestinal overgrowth and excessive bacteria, um, they're actually influencing our systemic estrogen levels, um, which can further exacerbate our imbalances uh, and be symptomatic. Somebody with too much estrogen uh, in women might be moody, irritable, weepy, depressed. Um, You might actually see more hair loss with that. So in that regard, the bacteria can influence our hormone levels, but then the um, hormone levels influence our gut motility. And I think oftentimes things like IBS are likely misdiagnosed hormone imbalances. Um, And if we use estrogen as an example, again, um, estrogen works very closely with the neurotransmitter serotonin. 90% of serotonin is found in our gut and it's a motility neurotransmitter. It affects how quickly or not so quickly um, our gut moves. Uh, And estrogen's role is to increase its availability, to increase its um, receptor activity and to increase its, its receptors themselves. So too little or too much estrogen will affect serotonin levels and thus gut motility. And we see those changes in multiple populations, whether it's women starting to go through menopause um, or uh, women using birth control. And I know we'll go there but in more detail, but um, there, it's a two-way street. Hormones affect bacteria and bacteria certainly affect, uh, or excuse me, hormones affect the gut and the gut affects our hormone levels. That's fascinating. Gosh, I'm just thinking of, <laughs> of my own journey. I'm thinking, wow. No wonder, no wonder I ended up with SIBO. I kind of had the perfect storm. And mm-hmm. I'm interested to know, is there, is it a bit chicken and the egg? Like what, what comes first? Is it um, something like SIBO commencing first or is it hormones that can lead to SIBO or is it a, a combination? I think that's a great question. And honestly, I think it's person dependent. You know, we have some people who say, oh, I know SIBO started after X, you know, they had that surgery or something happened and and the gut has never been the same since. Um, But for, um, and for those people, I think that X happened uh, and then um, the hormone balances became 
a part of it. They came with it a little bit later. And maybe that was exacerbated by the nutrient deficiencies that come with SIBO, especially B12 and iron. Uh, it came with the bacterial influences like we just talked about. Um, or maybe the stress from that situation increased their cortisol levels, uh, which would then affect the inflammation in the gut and the permeability uh, and um, lead us to even more um, gut concerns. Yet for others, um, you know, taking, taking a medication that affected the hormone balance or going through the menopausal transition that affects hormone balances, or maybe it's a woman who um, has an ovulatory cycle, so she's menstruating but she's not ovulating. Those are all times when um, our hormone levels are going to be lower than they're meant to be and then affect gut motility, which would predispose us to SIBO. Hmm, fascinating. I just, I'm so interested in this. <laughs> and as I said at the beginning, I've just been looking forward to this, uh, you know, this discussion with you so much because I just am so fascinated around hormones. Um, are there particularly common types of hormonal imbalances um, for women and men and, and whether they're different for those people that do have conditions like SIBO? Uh, you know, can mm -hmm. you say generally speaking where you can categorize you as having these imbalances versus say the general public ah i see you know honestly i think um the vast majority of people have similar imbalances um and it's how they present in in the person so i don't think that um, people with SIBO necessarily have different imbalances they may have the same but they're there um for a different reason and let me give you an example um, so cortisol levels, I alluded to that. Cortisol is our stress hormone. It's secreted by the adrenal glands during times of stress, and it's our brain that tells the adrenal glands to do that. Um, in times of chronic stress, uh, that whole system becomes what we call downregulated. And uh, after cortisol has been secreted in excess for a while, that stressor becomes the new norm. And why would we secrete excess cortisol if stress is our new norm? We have to reserve that reactivity for us um, a more stressful time. So the downregulation results in lower cortisol levels. The lower cortisol makes someone feel exhausted. Maybe they're having sleep problems, they're irritable, they have new allergies. But for someone with SIBO, SIBO is the chronic stress. And until we treat that, we can't fix that brain, adrenal, HPA access dysregulation. Um, whereas maybe somebody else has uh, cortisol dysregulation, but it's because they're burning the candle at both ends. So the, the imbalances may be the same, but they're there for different reasons. And if we treat the underlying reason, in this case SIBO, we can start to reset that HPA access and those cortisol levels back to a more optimal level. And I think for many people listening that they can they can see a visible stress with a condition like SIBO in terms of particularly chronic pain um, mm -hmm. where they are suffering, you know, they're really suffering every day. They're feeling really miserable. So yeah. there's almost like that surface level, if you like, or above the iceberg um, stress. And then there's the below the iceberg stress where the body's just, it's not performing the way it should. And that can mm -hmm. be, as I can imagine, that must be a stress for the body at a, just a biological level as well. Absolutely. And with stress and hormone imbalances, it's a little bit of a catch 22 because 
as the cortisol levels become dysregulated, our response to stress is not as strong and it becomes harder to deal with the stressors. And there could potentially be more pain associated with that harder and just harder time dealing with the stress overall. So there's a lot of things we can do for that. You know, there are supplements that help. There are daily activities that help depending on where somebody is in that, in that process uh, or how severe that dysfunction is. Um, and that can help with symptoms in the meantime while we're working on addressing SIBO. Mm. And so what are some of those things that people could do if someone's listening uh, and they're thinking, that is me, yeah. <laughs> my gosh, I've had this chronically for ages, I'm really stressed out by it because I feel so sick, I'm in pain, mm-hmm. what can I do today to help my system? Oh, absolutely. Great question. Um, that's one thing I'll mention. This is, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners are being treated for this or who have read about it, what I'm referring to is what's commonly called adrenal fatigue. It's not mm-hmm. the adrenals that aren't working um, per se. It's that dysregulation in the stress response. And our bodies have two states. Um, we can be in that go, 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 stressed out, running from a saber-toothed tiger, or we can be in the rest and digest state, our, our calm state. Um, and for people with adrenal dysfunction, we tend to be living in that stress state, right? So one of the easiest things for people to do are deep breathing techniques. If your breath out is longer than our breath in, it takes us out of go, go, go and puts us into rest automatically. And these are our deep belly breaths. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can be a four count in and a seven count out. But what that does is it helps tonify that system, puts us into the rest state that most people aren't living in, and starts to tonify the vagal nerve, which is the nerve that innervates our gut. And it's thought that there's potentially some dysregulation with that in our SIBO patients. So this is an activity that I ask people to do throughout the day. Um, you know, Think of something that you look at regularly, the clock, your watch, your phone. That, every time you look at that, that's your cue to do some deep breathing. It's cheap. It's free. Nobody has to know we're doing it. Um, and it actually works. That's great. I love cheap and free. Right? <laughs> Things that nobody else knows because, you know, we feel so, um, we feel like we've got spotlights on us at the best of times, especially if we're bloated or we're feeling really gassy, we're in pain, we're miserable. We feel like everyone's got, you know, there's a big arrow pointing at us. Uh, if we can mm-hmm. do some exercises where no one knows what we're doing, we can just quietly do it. I think that that's just wonderful. And yes. is there a number of repetitions that you need to do in order to have the benefits? Like, do you need to do three or or five or ten, um, or is it literally one breath that's longer out than um, a breath in is going to have an impact? That is a great question. I would say listen to your body. You know what it feels like to be in that go, go, go state versus to be in the rest state. So for some people, it's going to be just a couple breaths, and for others, they're going to need to do it for a couple minutes. Um, it likely depends on how, you know, where we are in the, in the severity of the dysfunction, but also how tightly wound we are. Um, I would recommend at least a few breaths there. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned as well um, that there are some supplements that you um, uh, can use with some of your patients. Now, obviously, this show is not medically diagnosing anybody or giving any medical advice, but just general, if you are able to sort oh, of sure. share general advice on supplements that can be beneficial, that mm-hmm. would be great. Yeah, general things that would be beneficial for the HPA access are things like um, B vitamins, particularly B5 and B6 vitamin C, vitamin E, 
Um, there are things called adaptogenic herbs, um, herbs that are um, that help us adapt to stress. That's why they're called adaptogenic. They will help people if their cortisol levels are high or if their cortisol levels are low. Um, but for others, um, you know, if they're able to find a provider to work with and really see how far in they are to that picture, we might actually even consider using things like a low-dose hydrocortisone or uh, adrenal glandulars. But I would reserve that for somebody where I knew where they were in that um, picture of adrenal dysfunction or HPA access dysfunction and knowing that they need a little bit more robust support than just adaptogenic herbs and um, vitamins. Uh, you don't want to give too much support either um, for to risk kind of shutting off that system if we don't need to, so to speak. Mm. And what's the best way to um, test your hormones? Is it a blood test or a saliva test? What, how do you go about yeah. it? Well, it depends on what you want to see. And clinically for me, I want to see tissue levels. That's what's important. So in our um, blood, hormones have to be um, chaperoned or carried to the tissues on a bus. And um, that bus is a protein. Um, so if they are on the bus, they love being on the bus. And um, they're not that's not reflective of what's available for, um, for your tissues. That's your total levels. And there's no way by drawing blood work that I can see um, what is reflective in somebody's tissue. Um, and that's where saliva comes in because it is reflective of tissue levels. Your hormones also, um, they have peaks and troughs throughout the day. And if we're doing a blood spot, we don't know if we're getting a peak or a trough. Whereas when we're doing saliva, we can average someone's hormones throughout the day, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, so the saliva testing will tell you if you're, um, what your tissue levels are. Um, it is the gold standard for cortisol testing and has been for uh, more than two, actually more than three decades now. Um, and it tells you your average of the day. So you don't have to worry about a peak or a valley. It's not a metabolite. It's truly um, reflective of what is um, available for the tissues to use. And it's more clinically relevant. It really fits the picture for people. Mm. It, I'm thinking back to my own journey and um, seeing a traditional medical practitioner, a GP as we call them here in Australia, uh, the number of times that I was sent off for blood tests for my hormones uh -huh. and it would come back and they'd be like, you're fine, you're fine. And it was only when I found my naturopath and she said, I think we've got some hormone hormonal issues at play and I did the saliva test and this was right at the beginning before we even had the SIBO diagnosis and my cortisol was completely out of whack it was you know it was the wrong way round. and I was um, she gave me some supplements that literally within the first time I took them I just felt like a different person because it was really helping support my body where it needed it and um, and you know I finally had that answer that yes there there was some hormone dysregulation and uh, now I understand why the blood tests just didn't show yeah. it. <laughs> and I love that explanation that they're on the bus and they love being on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> it works well. It paints the picture. Well, the other it thing does. you have to think about with, um, with serum testing is what are, we, um, what are we looking at? And, you know, when we, when we look at the reference range, you're being standardized to an average of who walks into that laboratory. And we know that most people going in – to a laboratory are sick. And so we're catching a sick population and they're checking to see if you fall within this wide range of what's considered normal. And you'll see that if you were to look closely at the reference range for serum testing, um, whether a woman, depending on where she is in her cycle, 
any level is going to fall into, quote, normal. Um, but people don't want to be normal. We want to be optimal because um, normal doesn't always feel good. Uh, and when you're looking um, at, depending on you know, how the reference ranges are set for a salivary lab, oftentimes they are set to optimal versus the average of the population. And that can be really helpful. That's so true. Yeah, gosh, Oh, I'm, I'm loving this episode. And just that, that comment about our laboratory results are often people who are unwell. And so we don't want to be falling into that norm. That just, uh, you know, that I think that's just excellent um, so for, for people to think of in the future when they perhaps might be getting results that are coming back and saying, and I myself have experienced this many times where my results were normal, as they said, but I felt rubbish and and but they're like but you're within a normal range but like you say normal wasn't optimal mm-hmm. and no wonder I wasn't feeling great <laughs> right yeah it's, it happens often yeah definitely mm-hmm. there are I hear from a lot of people and I myself have this um, whereby we have SIBO and then we have other conditions like endometriosis or polycystic ovaries or thyroid dysfunction. Uh And I'm just wondering, um, it it seems anecdotally to me, just from the number of people I speak to every day, that these conditions seem to be more prevalent in people that have SIBO. And I'm wondering if that is actually the case or if it's just anecdotal evidence that I'm seeing that mm-hmm. and and if so what's the link between a condition like SIBO and other um, dysregulation like endometriosis and PCOS and thyroid yeah. dysfunction I love this question um, and I'm, I love it but unfortunately there's no research out there to to show us that yes it exists as we know this is a newer field um, but I think we can speak to it and we really can tie it all in together um, Thyroid is an easy one. You know, your, your thyroid uh, hormones, they set your rate for pretty much everything. Our metabolism, uh, how warm or how cold we are, how often we're going to the bathroom. People with too little thyroid hormone will have tend towards constipation, where people with too much thyroid hormone might tend towards loose stools. Um, so it's your metabolism setting uh, hormone, um, and that will also affect how quickly your gut is moving. So if you think about um, any underlying motility issues with SIBO, I think thyroid hormone is a, is a hands-down one that we should all be looking at. Um, again, un- unfortunately, in the conventional model, most people are only screened in thyroid for um, something called TSH, at least here in the States. I don't know what it is in Australia, but... Um, it's the same. Okay, so TSH, yeah. it's not a thyroid hormone. It's a hormone that comes from the brain. And the person who invented this this test actually said, I hope this doesn't keep doctors from thinking. And I think sometimes it does. Because what we do or standard is um, for a physician to run a TSH. And if TSH falls within, and we're going to use that norm term again, we know it's not optimal, but if it falls within norm, then it's thought that the thyroid is functioning optimally without actually looking at thyroid hormones. Um, So what I do differently in my patient population is I look at the thyroid hormones as well because we do see that, um, you know, TSH might look okay, but the thyroid hormones themselves don't. And further yet, you know, we can reflex. um, So TSH tells the thyroid to make something called T4. 
and we measure free T4 to see if those levels look good. But free T4 becomes free T3, and that is your most biologically active or most potent in the tissues, and that's what's going to influence a lot of your gut motility, but most people aren't having that screened. It's not standard of care. Um, but in, or we just assume that if T4 looks good, T3 must as well, but it doesn't. Uh, it's, that's not always the case. That conversion requires adequate iron, which a lot of folks with SIBO don't have. Um, it requires cortisol, not too much and not too little. And T4 can go in the opposite direction. Uh, instead of going forward to free T3, and if it goes that opposite direction, it doesn't have any um, biological action. So I think for anybody with SIBO, um, and again, I'm not giving medical advice, but if thyroid hasn't been screened, it's really important because that does set our you know, metabolic rate and how quickly things are moving. And if there's imbalances there, um, balancing it could help quite a bit with symptoms uh, and with resolution. And what about um, with thyroid and excessive iron for conditions like hemochromatosis, which I myself have, although now that my SIBO has gone, my... Um, my levels with my iron are actually back into that normal <laughs> range, but they've definitely dropped. But if your iron is, you know, obviously if it's too low, then that's not ideal. But what if it's too high and on um, your thyroid? To my knowledge, too high does not affect um, thyroid, but I could be wrong there. Um, I have a very few patients with hemochromatosis in my practice, and I haven't seen a clinical correlation. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But, of course, too much iron is... Um, could potentially be damaging to any tissue in the body. So um, that would want, you know, we'd want to fix that too. Exactly. And, and what has been fascinating for me was my general practitioner uh, who still doesn't really believe in SIBO, although I'd really hope that with all the work that I'm doing, I might help be able to help change that. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got through my SIBO treatment and I got my all clear diagnosis, I had a, I redid my blood work for my hemochromatosis, which I've got the genetic mutation for, of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and within the six months from the first test to the last test, my numbers had dropped dramatically to the point where she couldn't quite believe that that had happened because she had never seen another patient have those kind of results. And when I said to her, she said, what on earth have you been doing? And I said, I've told you I'm healing my gut. I'm treating my SIBO and I'm trying to heal the leaky gut and changing my diet and changing my stress, uh, you know, putting everything back into a healthier state. Um, and she was like, yeah, yeah, but what are you really doing? <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, but, which is crazy, crazy for me anyway. Uh, but what was really interesting to me was that a condition, A, that I didn't know I had until the beginning of my SIBO treatment, mm -hmm. um, and B, that I'd been told had no known cure or no known treatment other than bl regular bloodletting, had dramatically improved yeah. because I'd treated another condition, which just shows our bodies are completely interlinked and we don't, nothing works in isolation. Oh, absolutely. That's um, so the truth. And, and with that, I'm sure um, there are absorptive processes that have changed. As you heal the gut, um, whether you're absorbing too little or too much of something, in this case, too much with the iron, as you heal that, um, you know, you're proof that it, it changes. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's been great. I love being a science experiment of one. <laughs> 
Um, what about other conditions like um, polycystic ovaries and endometriosis and SIBO? Because I, I just hear about these two um, in correlation a lot. And I also have endometriosis. So oh, my goodness. I have, I have a full kit bag of conditions. Yes. Well, um, I could absolutely see the connections there. Um, I don't think it's written on in the literature, at least. I couldn't find it. But um, that being said, um, both endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome have similar hormone imbalances with them. Um, they are both what we call estrogen dominant or progesterone insufficient uh, conditions, meaning um, in those conditions, the, uh, the ratio of progesterone to estrogen or the relationship between the two is imbalanced. There's more estrogen in relation to the progesterone that she has. Um, in endometriosis, that estrogen, of course, helps the um, endometrial tissue grow, and progesterone's job is to, to keep estrogen in check. Uh, so a woman with endometriosis might be more sensitive to estrogen or, or truly has higher levels, or just the, the tissues themselves are more sensitive to that for, for whatever reason. For a woman with PCOS, um, um, she is ovulating less frequently than a woman who does not have that, um, or maybe not ovulating at all. And it's when we ovulate in the second half of our menstrual cycle um, that we produce robust amounts of both estrogen and progesterone. Um, so in either of these conditions, um, there's potential for lower progesterone levels. That's what they have in common. And we think, you know, if we were to go, if you were all to go quickly and um, search for progesterone and gut, you'll see a lot of writing on it that progesterone increases constipation and slows gut motility. Um, but I, clinically, honestly, I don't see it. Um, very often when I write that imbalance for a woman, that's when her, her gut symptoms heal. That's when she feels less bloated, starts having regular bowel movements. Um, I worked with one woman who had been treating her SIBO for some time, and we got this, and I just gave her progesterone, and her symptoms got 60% better in a couple of weeks. And by all intents and purposes in the literature, that shouldn't happen, um, but it does. And um, in conventional approaches to hormone balancing, we really don't give women progesterone. Um, and there's a, a long drawn out explanation for that. And I'll try to keep it short, but I think it's the missing link for a lot of people for a lot of symptoms. Um, in the Women's Health Initiative, when we, uh, which was a, a big study on hormones in women, we, we found that um, women with utilizing hormones were at an increased risk of estrogen-dependent cancers and um, stroke cardiovascular risk. So that study was abruptly halted. But they were being given um, conjugated equine estrogens, which is um, a little bit of estrone, which we don't give women, excuse me, 50% estrone, which we don't give women, a little bit of estradiol, which is our, our main estrogen in um, our premenopausal years, and 13 other estrogens that aren't known to the female body. And they were given that in conjunction with a progestin. And progestin is what is found in birth control. And what I've been talking about is progesterone. That's the hormone that maintains a pregnancy. So our conventional approach to hormones is based off of this approach using conjugated equine estrogens and progestins uh, with a known risk of breast cancers uh, or increased risk of breast cancers and stroke. But progesterone actually has properties that 
decreased risk of estrogen-dependent cancers, dementia, osteoporosis, and cardiovascular disease. Um, so uh, in our medical literature, in our provider's offices, there's a lot of confusion between the two, and they're not differentiated, and women aren't getting progesterone. Um, and that's unfortunate because it has such great benefits, it's not only to those disease risk factors, but also to things like moodiness, irritability, prolonged menses, not feeling like yourself. And I see it helping so much in these particular conditions with um, IBS and SIBO. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, it's fascinating. My gosh. I'm learning so much today. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, I could talk about forever. Uh, that, yeah. Uh, I, well, I could listen to it forever. So this is, this is great. I know we've talked a lot about um, female conditions and female hormones, but I would really like to um, you know, touch on our male counterparts because mm-hmm. I do have male listeners and I don't want oh. them to feel left out at all. Um, are there hormone uh, imbalance um, conditions bit like what women have with, say, endometriosis or PCOS. Is, are there things that men can experience that, that um, anecdotally or that you see in practice where, um, you know, if they have SIBO, they're more likely um, or they present more often in clinic uh, with these types of conditions? Mm-hmm. Um, not so much on condition-driven uh, like we see in women with the PCOS or endometriosis, uh, but signs of hormone imbalance in men could be... Um, prostate concerns, um, so difficulty with urination, um, uh, increased urge for urination, those types of things there. Um, of course, fatigue, um, the, the cortisol stress fatigue picture is going to be the same for men. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is that men can have hot flashes too, and they're not necessarily um, forthcoming with that information unless we ask. But yes, men experience hot flashes as a sign of hormone imbalance or night sweats as a sign of hormone imbalance as well. And I think one of the main things that gets men into the office oftentimes for hormone imbalance is um, low libido or erectile dysfunction. Um, that's a sign that that hormones or, or other things are um, imbalanced and going on and needs to be addressed um, with men, you know, we think about women and there's this estrogen, progesterone um, imbalance or um, cortisol imbalance. Um, in men, we, we could tend to see lower testosterone. Um, in the literature, that's a little bit, um, uh, you can find it either way, but there's a couple of things that we see with men and gut symptoms. Um, and one can be uh, a decrease in the hormone that tells the testes to make testosterone. And so that itself would result in lower testosterone levels. But we also see an increase in um, a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. Um, and that is the bus for testosterone. 
So if testosterone's on the bus, um, it's not going to be in the tissues and available. And it would present then as low free or bioavailable testosterone um, with all the symptoms that come with that, which can be, again, fatigue, apathy, depression, um, hot flashes, or night sweats. So that's one thing to consider um, also when being checked for testosterone. Quite often, uh, men are checked in serum, and a lot of times that's that's reasonable. Um, with a couple readings, you can get a, a that's the one hormone you could check in serum and get a, a reasonable average. But we have to look at more than just total. And most practitioners who are doing testosterone therapies for men look at that or look beyond total, but not all. And so um, it's a total testosterone without sex hormone binding globulin is not reflective of what's available for, for use for men. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when advocating for yourself and trying to get an assessment of your, your hormone levels. Mm. I'm thinking some some guys that I know who, um, you know, I can see that just through their symptoms that there's probably issues with their um, GI tract. And uh, when I try to talk to them about, you know, how do you feel? How's your libido? All the rest. Mm-hmm. The really common thing that they say to me is, oh, well, you can't, you don't have a libido when you've got dodgy guts. Or, you know, and yes. dodgy is a <laughs> uh, very Australian way of saying things. But if you, if you, if your guts aren't feeling great, then, well, you don't want to, you know, be getting romantic with your partner. And I'm wondering if that it is not necessarily, obviously, no one feels particularly romantic if they've just had a nasty case of diarrhea. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if often that can be a signal that, um, you know, perhaps there is a hormone issue as well. It's not just the fact that you've, that you're not feeling great with your guts, that there could be more at play. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you there. And as you mentioned earlier, it's not just you know, one thing, all the systems interact. And when we think about um, proper gut health or optimal gut health, um, you know, hormones certainly are a huge part of it, whether that's motility or um, maintaining integrity of the tissues or um, helping to maintain adequate and appropriate levels of bacteria um, and neurotransmitters. Um, so they, they probably... Probably both are going on in, in your friends. There's some hormone imbalance and some uh, some actual digestive concerns going on too. And likely, honestly, both need to be treated. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about getting your hormones tested? I think that uh, particularly for you know young guys who aren't uh, who wouldn't consider themselves at an age where hormone um, dysregularity should be an issue for them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it can be quite confronting. Whereas if I was to have that conversation with a girlfriend and I think we could, we could talk very openly about how our hormones are making us feel or not feel and whether that that's an issue. Do you, do you see that in practice where um, men are more or less um, willing to discuss hormonal issues? Um. No, I don't. When in my practice, most of it is women. And when men are coming to me, it's because their um, their wives or their friends um, either really strongly suggested it or they made the appointment for them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And but usually we can talk about things, you know, in men, you're right, we think about um, hormones being changed with age, but um, testosterone levels start declining in men at age 30. So here we are, 30-year-old male, just learning what we want to do with life. The brain only just stopped developing a couple of years ago, and hormone levels are already declining. And when we couple that, and that's 
with environmental factors affecting um, hormones that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. It's a, it's a double whammy. Um, so I think we could open up the conversation more. Um, and I, I hope that that happens um, for, for men, but in my practice, I don't get to see it very often. Um, yeah, and I see that you know there's there's plenty out there for female hormones. Um, there's so much written and talked about, but there just isn't that much for for our um, guys. And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame because I think that you know I'm thinking of all the thirty year olds that I know, and there's no way that they would uh, be thinking that their hormones would be starting to decline. Um, I think that most of them would think that they're strong, virile, (laughs) energetic, you know, manly men that will (laughs) have testosterone that they had at 18 until the day they die. (laughs) Yeah. The neat thing though is that when I do end up getting to work with a male who we get hormones balanced and he feels good, he will tell his friends. And then uh, we get to start working with a, a lot more of the male population. And um, if you, if there's a couple guys out there who have, who have done that, it'd be great to share that with your, with your guy friends and let them know, uh, don't keep it a secret. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Great advice. Don't keep it a secret. Tell your other mates. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about the contraceptive pill uh, and the role that that plays um, on our hormones and also gut health. And um, I know that uh, when looking at some of the underlying risk factors for SIBO, the contraceptive pill is often listed as something that can exacerbate or worsen symptoms. Um, and I myself came off the pill um, around the time I got diagnosed with SIBO because I decided I wanted to try and keep my body as natural as I could to help the healing process. So I'd love to hear about the role that that plays on our hormones and our gut health and um, you know any issues with the pill and SIBO. Yeah, um, I love to talk about this because I think it um, demystifies some misconceptions that we have around um, birth control. Uh, and, and birth control, the, the pill for women, it's a catch-22 because you know a lot of people are using it for their contraceptive needs and might not have access to um, other means. Um, but it does put people in a hormone imbalance just by the nature of what it does. Um, So we have this misconception um, that the birth control pill regulates our hormones or um, regulates our hormone cycle. And it does keep our hormone levels steady, but we have to think about what it's doing. Its job is to stop ovulation, and it does that very, very well. Um, But if we don't ovulate, um, then we're not producing those robust amounts of estrogen and progesterone, estradiol and progesterone, um, that we normally would be. That helps to sensitize our neurotransmitters and um, keep things moving and desensitize us to pain and things like that. Um, so we, with the birth control pill, we end up with low-level estrogen um, and very low-level progesterone. It puts us in an estrogen-dominant uh, or progesterone-insufficient state just by the nature of what it does. That's its job. Um, But with that, most women experience um, or can experience some increased symptoms. And I I would attribute that to um, the change in gut motility that would be associated with that, um, where we talked about how estrogen can um, help make 
serotonin um, and help um, keep it more available for tissues to use and things of that nature. Um, we just, we don't have ample levels. And then we couple that um, with the birth control pill, uh, its effect on testosterone. Um, it will decrease testosterone uh, production in women because of the decreased ovarian activity. But the pill also um, will um, increase sex hormone binding globulin levels. And just like in men, um, testosterone loves to be on, on that sex hormone binding globulin bust in women as well. So, so we have a double whammy there with um, decreased production from the ovaries, but also increased binding. And so with that, you know, I think we're seeing slowed motility for some, but we're also seeing a decrease in androgen levels that can lead to an increase in pain. And so we might even be more hyper aware of our symptoms with that. Um, and, and so there's a, a twofold mechanism that, that I would see with that. Hmm. That's really interesting. And, and obviously, you know, the one thing I don't want to do is, is, say to people you must never take the birth control pill because yeah. it's been wonderful for women it gives us so much freedom and mm -hmm. and um the ability to live a life without you know constantly worrying about um, falling pregnant but i think it's really important that we know what it is doing um to our bodies and i myself blindly took the um, birth control pill for it must have been close to 20 years because my endometriosis was so terrible that i um you know, have it staying on the pill was the easiest way to control the sure. really severe symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and I had great fear about coming off it because I didn't want to be bedridden with the endo symptoms. But um, really luckily that that all kind of disappeared once I started treating the SIBO, yeah. which, is, which has been great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for women who aren't on any kind of birth control and who are um, having, uh, you know, let's call it a natural cycle uh, that isn't impacted by uh, hormone treatment, what I also hear anecdotally from people is that their symptoms get worse at points in their cycle. Yeah. So I have some ladies say to me, oh, my bloating and my pain is terrible when I'm ovulating. Or I have other ladies say to me, you know, the week prior to my period commencing, I just, I'm, I'm terrible. You know, my, my guts are really bad. I'm, I've either got really bad diarrhea, or really bad constipation. Mm -hmm. I'm bloated. One lady said to me, I only have one week where I feel good yes. out of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Those are, How can that, why does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> and what can I do about it? And that's a great question. And I see that time and time again in my office. And that is a huge sign that there is a hormone imbalance there. Um, quite often, um, depending on where someone is in their transition towards menopause, um, the vast majority of the time, that is um, too little progesterone uh, in relation to estrogen. And that occurs either because uh, well, for multiple reasons. It can occur because um, a woman didn't ovulate. And so if you don't ovulate and you have an anovulatory cycle, your body's still making estrogen. It makes it in the peripheral tissues, in our adipose cells. Um, so those are our fat cells. So we can make estrogen, but if you don't ovulate, then you're not making robust amounts of progesterone. You're making a teeny tiny bit from the adrenal glands, but not a lot from um from ovulation that like you normally would. So there's a large imbalance there and people will feel moody, irritable, quicker to trigger, bloated, bowel habit changes. Um, but besides not ovulating, some women will have what we call a luteal phase failure where they do ovulate, um, but the corpus luteum, the tissue from which 
the egg comes from and expresses hormones doesn't hang around and do its job as long or as optimally as it could. And so with that, you'll see hormone uh, imbalances and fluctuations as well. Um, so maybe that's someone who um, just the week before menses starts to feel those same similar symptoms. She doesn't feel like herself. She feels bloated, um, irritable, more quick to, to trigger or anger, more fatigued, things along those lines. Um, those, those are probably the, the two biggest reasons. Uh, and then as we, uh, another thing to consider, and this goes kind of something we haven't talked about is just our, our dietary um, choices, our clean, healthy living. But in our world, we are exposed to um, what we call um, xenoestrogens on a regular basis for most people. And that's uh, chemicals uh, that act like estrogen in our body at the receptors, um, but we can't measure them as estrogen. So you're not going to measure them on a test and see, oh, my xenoestrogens are this high, um, but they have estrogen-like effects. So um, depending on how, what our estrogen burden is, um, that can also impact how we're feeling and our need for maybe more progesterone than our neighbor who doesn't have as large of an estrogen burden. Um, so those changes in the hormones or the fluctuations in hormones is what causes those symptoms. And everyone is different. Um, so it used to be, you know, um, years ago, if we had menopausal symptoms or um, we're trending towards menopause and had symptoms, we were just given estrogen. But that's not that simple. You know, um, if we were to keep that approach, most women probably wouldn't feel better. Uh, and so it's, it's an individualized approach that we take. Uh, and I want to make sure it doesn't sound like I'm saying that, that uh, those changes only occur in menopause because it can take us, you know, the average age of menopause is about 52. But that transition can last 13 years, plus or minus five on either end. Um, so our hormone levels really are starting to fluctuate starting in our mid thirties. And I know that's, um, starting with the kind of the age group of your, your listeners. Um, but oftentimes those women are told you're too young for, for hormone changes to be happening. It must be something else. Here's your antidepressant. And I'm not, I'm not knocking antidepressants. Um, but oftentimes hormones are overlooked as the cause for some of these symptoms when truly it, it can be, even though we're considered you know, quote, too young for that to be occurring. I hear that quite often. And I think that's really important point for, for anyone listening, that if they've been told you're too young for uh, to be in, um, um, you know, going into that menopausal cycle uh, to perhaps go find somebody else that knows more about hormones that can work with you around what's actually happening for you personally. You talked about xenoestrogens um, and that we can be exposed to them. How, um, how are we exposed to them? Are there certain things that people will regularly, uh, how people regularly come into exposure with them that they could, you know, be aware of? Absolutely. Um, thanks for bringing me back full circle there. Um, xenoestrogens are found in things like plastics, um, whether it's our plastic water bottles or plastic containers that we're cooking in. They're found in our cosmetics, um, things that we're applying to our face, our nail polish. Um, they're found in um, uh, pesticides, herbicides, potentially some of our meats. And scarily actually even in our water supply. Um, so it's, they can be hard to get away from in, in today's world. Um, but if you're making, really it's a, a case of do the, the best you can with the information you have at the time. And 
um, you know, trying to limit exposure to those things by eating, um, uh, maybe eating organic when you can, or, um, or drinking out of glass, not using plastic if it's been heated, um, things along those lines, um, using oils, uh, coconut oil or something as a moisturizer instead of something that's had perfumes added to it. Um, you know, it's just, just things along those lines, which I realize as um, in this, your, your listeners in particular, they're already so, um, so having to pay so much close attention to what they're eating and, and what they're doing with their gut that that might be a little bit much to ask. Um, so again, we do what's feasible, um, what's feasible for each individual. Um, and that might be different from person to person based on what you're currently dealing with and what you're already spending your um, priorities on. And I think it's um, also a process. I know that initially for me, it was all about dealing with SIBO, mm-hmm. but then I, I became aware of just what, you know, well, okay, if my system's really compromised, what else am I compromising it with? And I started to, it was like I just opened my eyes for the first times and really looked at what I was using every day, like my hand wash, my body lotions, my shampoo and conditioner, my skincare, makeup, deodorant, all of that stuff. And just very slowly over a probably a 12-month period, I just started swapping things out. So I wouldn't throw anything out, but as soon as I finished it, I would then replace it with something that was either organic or that was um, free from all the, you know, the nasties. Um, and that has been my way of of slowly transitioning away from things that could be giving me greater toxic exposure. And I, it's only just now that I've realized, I looked around and I thought, wow, I've pretty much done most things. I've got, mm-hmm. you know, I've changed everything out. But because I did it one at a time, it didn't feel a expensive and b it didn't feel overwhelming because I just picked one thing. Awesome! I love that advice. I, I um, will give that often when we're doing dietary changes or something in the clinic. And you know, I think one thing to consider is it took us, you know, however old we are, 30, 40, 50 years to learn how to live this way. It's not going to change overnight. And so, those little baby steps and just working towards clearing those things over time, like, like you mentioned and did yourself, I think is a fabulous approach. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my, um, one of my women asked me around what happens if a period stops completely around mm. the time that SIBO has developed and is that caused because of SIBO? Uh, and, uh, I don't know whether you've got any, um, if there's any literature around that or just clinical experience around that. Um, that's a, a great question. I'm, I'm going to have to assume that it's a, a rare happening and I could be wrong. So please reach out and tell me if I am. Um, I don't think it's a direct cause of SIBO per se, but there is something um, called hypothalamic secondary amenorrhea, which is a very long word for stress-induced um, stopping of the period. Uh, and so whether for some people it is a, a stress-like oh my gosh, I have this diagnosis, what do I do with it? Or I worked with one woman whose partner left her when she was living in a country far away from her hometown and her her menses stopped. It it could literally be stresses of that nature. But it can also be, um, particularly in SIBO, I think it could be stresses associated um, with actually what's coming in. So if we start to get so focused on what we're eating and every time we we eat we don't feel good and we're limiting calories, that could be one stressor, caloric limitations. 
Um, we have to be eating adequate calories in order to have our menses. It could be potentially nutrient deficiencies or if we've lost weight with SIBO um, and we don't have adequate fat stores to have menses, that could be another reason for it as well. So I definitely see where the associations could be, um, but I think they're secondary to the SIBO diagnosis um, uh, versus a, a, a SIBO causing that per se. I think it's the things that come along with SIBO that would cause um, menses to stop. Mm, sure. And we've talked a little bit about menopause and I just just for my listeners, um, just like to get a little bit of an explanation around what is uh, perimenopause, premenopause and then full menopause and what happens in that cycle uh, and that you gave um, a really great um, explanation of the length of time that a woman can expect that that may mm. occur and, and also the impact that that has at each of those specific phases on the gut um, obviously with reference to things like SIBO. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so when women um, are experiencing these symptoms for the first time, a lot of times it parallels their um, some hormone imbalances that they're experiencing. Uh, and when we are um, premenopausal, that, that can happen from stress, it can happen from weight gain, uh, it can happen um, from uh, new dietary changes, all sorts of reasons there. In the perimenopausal years, um, hormone imbalances typically happen because of fluctuating um, hormone levels as we trend towards menopause. Um, so uh, maybe a woman skips a period uh, or she has an anovulatory cycle, or she skips three periods, or she bleeds longer than normal. Um, so these fluctuating levels um, can be problematic as far as being symptomatic in their effects on, on the gut. Um, specifically, I think about gut motility with that, um, but also um, inflammation. Uh, and uh, inflammation in itself creates a happy home. And a lot of our organisms will move in, specifically candida, because, um, because we created that happy home. Uh, so we have to treat the underlying cause, uh, which hormone imbalance may be playing a role there. So we uh, treat that and, and remove that, that happy home and, and kick out the invaders, basically. Um, but then when we trend towards menopause, once a woman hasn't had a menstrual cycle for 12 consecutive months, she is officially menopausal. And at that point, hormone levels become pretty steady. Um, there aren't the same uh, robust fluctuations that we were experiencing as we trend towards that age and towards that um, transition. Uh, and with that, usually there's a, a decrease in symptom severity. It's not that the symptoms aren't there, um, but they might not be as robust as they were when hormone levels were fluctuating. Um, that transition looks different for everybody uh, as far as hormone levels. And again, uh, they're significantly impacted by our lifestyle, our diet, weight gain, weight loss, stress, things of, of those nature. And so that the actual hormone picture might be different. Um, but usually we see a, a decrease in symptomology uh, with the menopausal transition. And in terms of hormone um, therapies and uses, using things like bioidentical hormones, um, how does that work and, and how does somebody find a practitioner that they can work with to, to do that and, and why would you um, use hormone therapy? Uh, so... I think that's going to be an individual choice based on um, the patient, her, uh, his or her uh, medical history, 
and their goals. Um, you know, in young women uh, who are still a couple decades out from that menopausal transition, um, they may still have the ability to ovulate and to really maintain um, adequate hormone levels through ovulation. And for, for them, um, you know, maybe we're talking uh, women in their 20s or late teens, things of that nature, um, they might opt not to use hormone therapies and to use things like diet and herbs to help maintain um, uh, ovulatory cycles and thereby maintaining um, their sex hormone uh, levels, but uh, also working with a practitioner for cortisol levels. In the populations in kind of mid-30s and beyond for women or um, same kind of age group for men, as we start to see hormonal shifts as a part of our our current lifestyles, uh, hormone therapies may be a consideration, uh, but we have to be both the, the patient and pro, uh, provider should be comfortable with that, but understanding um, what they're using. Uh, one of my um, typical approaches is to use the lowest amount possible for the least amount of time, and that's going to be hormone dependent. You know, when we're talking about things like progesterone that really doesn't have any negative side effects, um, maybe that's a long-term consideration for most people, uh, especially because as women, once we go through menopause, we're not making much of it and we don't have the ability to make it, in, at least in robust amounts. Whereas estrogen, you know, we do have the ability to, to make that, um, and so that might not be a consideration for all people. Same with our testosterone, our DHEA levels, cortisol levels. We can come up with individualized plans based on where a woman's hormone levels are. And that's something that we revisit on um, a yearly basis uh, at minimum to make sure that uh, we're approaching this as safely as we can and that hormone levels uh, remain well-balanced despite any lifestyle changes. Uh, working with a practitioner who utilizes um, individualized bioidentical hormone therapies um, is, is really what we're looking for um, with the idea that we're um, repleting levels um, using what's called physiologic doses. So a dose that the body would normally make on its own versus something known as pharmacologic. Um, and that would be a dose that's well above and beyond what the body would make on its own. Um, and when we, we do that, um, you know, we tend to see uh, better outcomes and potentially even better um, safety or risk profiles. You know, we're still talking about hormones here, but really having a clear understanding about what they do and making sure they're balanced. I know I've I've harped on progesterone a little bit, but I want to. The one thing I want to mention on this is, in conventional standard of care, women are not given um, progesterone regularly. If they are given progesterone, if they are given estrogen, and they have a uterus, uh, because progesterone will protect against the the growth um, effects of estrogen at the uterine lining or the endometrium. But we have to remember that um, we as women also have breast tissue and brains and bones and a cardiovascular system that need protection too. Um, and, and that only giving it um, for uh, endometrial protection is, is a large disservice for women. And that comes from that old women's health initiative that we talked about where we saw progestins potentially increasing risk of certain conditions.
Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. My final question for you is around weight gain. Uh (laughs) Because uh, I myself am included in this category of women that say, oh, it's my hormones. That's why I'm putting on so much weight. And particularly with SIBO, there really is is two camps. There's the ones, um, those of us who cannot um, stop the weight gain or if we've put it on, we find it really hard to take off. And then there's the others who are losing weight rapidly. Um, How much of weight loss or weight gain is to do with our hormones or is it to do with something else and we should stop blaming our poor little hormones for it? (laughs) Hormones definitely play a role, especially based on what hormone we're talking about and um, where uh, we are in a menopausal transition as, as women. Um, what I I usually teach that hormones lay the foundation. So typically, you know, if we get hormones balanced, it's not a magic pill for weight loss, um, but it lays that strong foundation so that what you're doing, your, your lifestyle changes, your dietary approach, your exercise approach actually take effect. Uh, Because otherwise we don't have that strong foundation. We're really spinning our wheels there. The um, average weight gain in menopause is about 12 pounds. Um, and that has to do with fluctuating hormones. And women will notice that that, um, that weight actually moves where they used to have it in their hips. Now all of a sudden they have belly fat for the very first time. Uh, and that has to do with changing estrogen levels. Uh, but then with that, um, a lot of women um, will have kind of imbalanced blood sugars, which uh, lend towards elevated testosterone or DHEA, which can further affect weight gain. And of course, cortisol. We all expect our cortisol levels to be high because we're gaining weight. But usually when cortisol levels are higher, we aren't feeling bad yet. So once we test someone, they're they're feeling bad. They're well beyond the part where cortisol was laying down excess um, belly fat. Uh, and we're now at a stage where the cortisol levels can be lower as well. And the, you know, the same for men. As men age, their testosterone levels decline naturally. As testosterone levels decline, estrogen levels go up, and men are predisposed to insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. And they will also start to put weight on around the middle. Um, so while SIBO likely plays a role because of nutrient deficiencies and our change in diet habits that come with it, um, you know, hormones play a huge role there, but we also know um, bacterial shifts, the metabolome of our, of our gut um, plays another large role. And that's a um, you know, topic that I can't speak to uh, as well as somebody who's so well immersed in that field. And it's a newer field that's um, becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, and I think we're going to learn a lot about that whole um, gut brain access influence on weight and everything um, in the coming years. It'll become much more prevalent to us. It will, and I am so excited by that. I look forward to seeing all of the research uh, that comes out around that field because mm-hmm. I think that's just fascinating. It is. So it truly is. Yeah. Dr. Robin Kutka, it's been uh, wonderful having you on the show today. Um, if somebody would like to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to my current website, uh, which is uh, PDX, P like Paul, D like dinosaur x like xylophone nd.com um, and that that website will be live for a while but we are um, rebranding our clinic because i've brought in several other um, physicians at this point and i'm 
excited to be launching um, a program around hormone uh, balancing for people where they can actually test their hormones and get a consult with someone. So that will be coming uh, in the next couple of months too. And as that does, the, the info will be up there on the PDXND website. That's wonderful. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I myself have learned an enormous amount. And I, as I said at the beginning, I was just looking forward to this um, episode with you so much. So I really appreciate your time. And I know my listeners will uh, will, will have enjoyed it as well because I have answered a lot of the questions that they asked me to ask you. So thank you once again for coming on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. You're so welcome. I hope everybody was able to get something out of it. And uh, I really appreciate being able to share this information and get it out there for people. I hope you enjoyed episode 23 with Dr. Robin Kutka. And if you'd like to get the full transcription of today's show, all the show notes, or any of the links mentioned, uh, you can head to thehealthygut.co forward slash hormones where you'll be able to get them and don't forget to leave a rating and review in itunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast we absolutely love hearing your feedback and if you think that anyone you know may benefit from listening to this episode all about hormones don't forget to share it with them you can also connect with us on facebook instagram twitter youtube pinterest and google plus just look for us under the healthy gut Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by Dr. Jason Horolek, and we talk all about pre and probiotics and how he uses them in the treatment of his SIBO patients. So that's coming up next week and it's an absolute beauty, that episode, so I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.